Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The year is 2018. Man United legend Steve Bruce narrowly avoids death when a hysterical fan hurls a cabbage at him. Someone has just wanged a cabbage at Steve Bruce. But how did it come to this? From Knights in the Slammer to penning murder mystery novels, meet the Prem's most misunderstood manager. How's the bacon, did you say? My name is Jack Rivlin. Welcome back to the Upshot Podcast. I'm joined, as always, by Zachary Sweeney-Lynch. Hi, Jack. Hello, mate. And our guest today is Seamus O'Reilly. Hello, hello. Hello, Seamus. Seamus is the co-editor of The Fence magazine and author of the best-selling memoir, Did You Hear Mammy Died?, which is described by critics as tender, sad, and side-splittingly funny. That's <laughs> true. Yeah. Like this like this podcast episode? Yeah, much like this podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the best books. Um, Ever. So, yeah, yeah. If, you, if you're familiar with books, it's one of the best ones. <laughs> So um, that would be my big recommendation. Do you need anything else from me? Is that, is that no, I mean, you, okay. you, you can go. Say, this has been great. <laughs> so do pick it up for Christmas. Uh, Seamus, though, you're here today on another matter. The other hat you wear is as an expert on Steve Bruce's murder mystery novels. I don't want to get, we're going to talk about them later in detail, but how did you fall down that rabbit hole? Um, I first encountered word of them through some sort of Samizdat from other little some other f- sort of football correspondents and sporting reporters that these books have been written, but that nobody had read them and that actually they were almost impossible to find. So at a time when I was working nine to five in a very boring job, I decided I was going to write substantially more than my university dissertation <laughs> on each of the books. So I, I am the world's foremost expert, except no imitators. Um, I do one day also hope to set up the Steve Bruce Literary Resource Archive in a small but prestigious Rebic University where maybe a quarterly journal where we can talk about it. So uh, if nothing else, this this entire episode will just be me punting uh, to get some like starter capital, some seed money, yeah. that we can make this happen and people can, you know, read scholarly works. So yes, hopefully I'll get to tell you about all of my favorite bits and maybe you'll have even sort of insights that I haven't myself uh, uncovered. Yeah. What well, wasn't the first copy you bought? stolen from an, a Shetland Islands library. It was. It was a, stolen from a library in the Shetlands. Not by me. <laughs> um, they're beautiful. Most people will never get the chance to read them, so it is up to us to carry on their legacy. <laughs> <laughs> do pick up a first edition if you can. Yeah, oh, yeah. Like, yeah, and you'll have to like read it wearing plastic gloves. <laughs> yeah. It's like the Book of Kells in Dublin. You have to go in there, you have to take a ticket, and you get to 
turn one page <laughs> per decade. Right, I think we should get into it, Zach. Do you want to kick us off? Yeah, so Steve Bruce, as you as you probably can guess, is a, is a born and bred Geordie. He grew up in a village uh, just outside Newcastle. He used to crawl under the gates at St. James's Park to, to watch his beloved magpies. Oh, lovely stuff. <laughs> he, he also, it was kind of hard to imagine when you look at him now, but as a kid, he was really sort of scrawny, skinny kid who uh, apparently he was, he was always too embarrassed to get changed at school because all the, all the other kids made fun of him. But he, he took up football for a really young age. He started playing for um, Wallsend Boys Club, who is a, a team in the Northeast where uh, a lot of a lot of other professionals have yeah, come I've out. Yeah, I've definitely heard of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a bit, of a bit of a talent factory in the Northeast. Any, any big names? Stan Collymore? Uh, oh, really? Peter Beardsley. Stan you know, Collymore, Possibly, perhaps? yeah. Anyway, yeah. So, um, yeah, big sort of talent factory. He was offered trials at, at Newcastle, Sunderland, Derby. None of them really went anywhere. Um, and he basically thought that his football career was was going nowhere. So he he uh, started doing an apprenticeship as a as a plumber on the dockyards in Newcastle. Um, when he was uh, offered a trial at at Gillingham, him and Peter Beardsley actually were offered trials. And Steve says that I could barely have told you what division they were in, let alone where the town was, which. <laughs> Uh, so spoiler, spoiler is a long way from Newcastle. Where, what division were they in? The, uh, I think third division at that point. But it's, it's all the way down in Kent. It's like three hundred miles from Newcastle. So him and Peter Beardsley get the train down together and go on trial. And Steve is uh, is offered an apprentice contract. Beardsley sadly gets rejected. But for for Bruce, this was like great. I'm going to finally live my dream as a footballer. Unfortunately, this apprentice contract isn't all it's cracked up to be. So he. Um, he obviously gets he gets his training sessions, but it seems like he also becomes like the the training ground handyman. So he says <laughs> he would they had him like fixing bus pipes, painting the roof. Uh, I mean, they had like the standard fare of scrubbing players' boots, but all these other sort of just odd jobs around the training ground. I don't know if they heard about his plumbing apprenticeship, and they were sort of like, "Oh, great!" <laughs> <laughs> Got Peter Beardsley, Steve Bruce. You know, I mean. Brucey could probably get him on the leaky bog in the away end yeah. as well. More strings to his bow. Yeah, 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 yeah. So even then, he's sort of honest workhorse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't doesn't seem to mind these kind of odd jobs. Maybe not not quite what he's expecting though when he when he signed his apprentice <laughs> contract. There was other one other tragic aspect of his move down from Newcastle to to Kent was the fact that he had to leave behind his beloved Janet. Um, his his girlfriend from school and and still his wife today. I'm happy to report. He, in his uh in his book, he describes her as a good, honest Geordie woman. Oh, that's good. I I imagine that's how Steve Bruce picks his partners. <laughs> good, honest, and Geordie. Those three in that order, no yeah. exceptions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can't you can't go wrong really with yeah. that. But obviously, they're they're a long way away from each other. They can't can't see each other very often. And Steve is living in digs with this um, this family, with a, a woman called Marjorie, I think. And Steve, being the like, considerate young man that he was, he didn't want to you know rack up phone bills on on Marjorie's phone, speaking to Janet. So every night he was out at the um, phone box down the road. You know, like whispering sweet nothings down the down the line to Janet, but obviously he's not earning a lot of money. So at some point he realizes that he can reverse the call charges to Janet's box 
and she also doesn't have to pay so he can he can uh they can they can speak on the phone for hours then he can slip off into the night with his pocket money intact and this is all going well for months until the authorities cotton on to what's what's happening and interpol yeah, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. red notice yeah. <laughs> panorama investigation uh, and they um so they basically realize that there's all these calls going between gillingham and the northeast and they start listening into the calls and one night steve is uh telling janet about what he's been up to and he um he tells her that he's been sent off against swindon in a match he, he says it did not take Sherlock Holmes to deduce from the newspaper reports the next day who'd been making the call. Wow! That's so what they, they got the line tapped at this point. Yeah, so they're tapping so the line. Is that a direct line from his autobiography? That's exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'm not going to lie. That's very, very similar to some of the stuff we'll be talking about later. <laughs> oh, yeah. He uses a, almost exactly that line several times, but uh, we'll keep that as a dot, dot, dot. <laughs> well, it was same, same author, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> developing his style early so anyway so the police have police have listened to this and they've they've basically clocked who it is so the next night brucey's back in the phone box doing his old reverse the charges <laughs> trick when he hears sirens and his first his first thought he's chatting to janice ah there, there must be a fire nearby when suddenly four police cars and a van swoop on the phone box and bruce says there was a moment of horrid realisation that I was the target of the manhunt. I just had time to scream, Janet, run, run, they've caught us, before I was nabbed. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, um, Bruce is arrested and thrown in the slammer uh, for, for, for a night. <laughs> <laughs> if, you're, if you're coming to this podcast through our, us promoting it as Steve Bruce's stints in the slammer, then... Yeah. I'm sorry, this is it. <laughs> this one stretch. Yeah. Yeah. Closing yeah. the Bureau de Change for an hour. Yeah, basically. Yeah. It's a four stretch, really. Four hours. <laughs> I did heavy bird that night. Yeah. Um, and anyway, so he, he's, he's in the cell and he gets, gets his one phone call. And obviously his parents are 300 miles away. So he calls the, the Gilliam kit man, who's a bit of a father figure to him. And the, the kit man comes down apparently finds it absolutely hilarious and has to has to has to come and collect him from the police station get him his shoelaces back and um yeah and, and takes him home and bruce says that the next day he had the the distinction of being on both the front and the back pages of the of the local newspaper oh that's good yeah, yeah. so well, the, what was the back page story so the fr- front front page headline was soccer star shame and the back page was Bruce's Gills Player of the Year. <laughs> Was it really? Yeah, yeah. That seems far too neat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, oh, yeah. Build him up and knock him down. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, maybe that maybe the back pages had already gone to press or, or been been, like, been signed off. Firm, he is the best. Yeah. We don't care if he's a hardened crim. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There was there was breaking news in the middle of the night. It's like stop press. See, <laughs> Bruce has been Gillingham <laughs> Apprentice has been caught reversing call charges. I mean, to be fair, that's that's local paper. That's a big scoop. Yeah, like, player really, of the year behind bars. Yeah. Well, what happened? Was he convicted? He got a fine, I think. Oh right. Um, do, do you know how much the fine was? I don't. <laughs> I don't. I, can't remember we're calling that a slap on the wrist aren't we Absolutely. yeah maybe maybe they were they wanted to make an example of him you know 
Like Surely if you're a copper and it's like, do you want to go and deal with a drunken stabbing at the city centre outside a club? Or do you want to go and uh, <laughs> arrest a player of the year for Gillingham who's been defrauding they British They just Senegal? wanted an autograph. That's what it was. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot. They were all, they were hardcore gills. Um, <laughs> they just really, really wanted to meet old Brucey boy with the reverse charges. Uh, bizarre. A, a bizarre instalment of his life. Yeah. I'm, I'm gripped. Yeah, yeah, but it does allow us to use the phrase Steve Bruce's stints in the slammer, which yeah. is, <laughs> thanks, thanks for that. Yeah. Thanks for that, Steve. <laughs> um, but he he ends up actually spending seven years at Gillingham. I mean, which, that's doing time. Yeah. Seven that's, stretch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he then went on to play for, you know, the best team in the 90s. <laughs> so yeah. It's slightly different. There was, there was one good story from... Uh, 1983, I think it was his last season at Gilliam. And uh, he apparently got really pissed off in a match and decided to try and injure one of his opponents and slid in and uh, succeeded only in breaking his own leg. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not not great. But by this point, he's, he's kind of making a bit of a name for himself and Gilliam uh, drawn against Everton in the FA Cup and... They get a really creditable draw. Steve Bruce plays amazingly and a lot of like bigger clubs are sniffing around him. Newcastle were interested apparently, which would have been oh a boy. dream a dream come true for him, but that falls through. Uh, and he ends up at Norwich. So I guess it's, it's on the way home. <laughs> <laughs> on his debut for Norwich, it's a bit of a catastrophe. He scores two own goals, one of them inside the first minute. There's actually a bit of a theme in his career, terrible debuts, because on his, on his Gilliam debut, he was, was knocked unconscious. <laughs> and on his Man United debut, he broke his nose and got sent off. Whoa. So yeah, he's not... Was that his first nose break? Yeah. That yeah. was, was the it? nose break well, yeah, we are now living in the shadow of. We're, we're coming on to the nose breaks in a bit, because there's, okay. there's more. Yeah. There's plenty. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, that is the first, the, the striker, of the, the opposition striker tries to bicycle kick the goal. And connects with Brucey's nose. That's that just it. that just sounds so sore. <laughs> oh, he says my nose was coming out of my ear. That's uh, how he describes it. You know, he's got that twist. I actually think he might. Do have I had... know? It's the most famous thing about his face. But hasn't yeah. he? Has he had some uh, reconstructive surgery? I, I actually can't. I just remember he had a real glow up before he got the Newcastle he job. He's really did. slim and he uh, tanned and he looked like he got his tips frosted. Yeah, <laughs> it was all a lot tidier, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, he looked like a. Uh, a rural Irish priest in a relatively wealthy parish. <laughs> um, I also, I saw him described as a dinner lady who'd done a decade in the MMA. <laughs> <laughs> well, famously in Irish, he, in Irish uh, football nerd communities, he's most associated with looking almost identical to Brenda Fricker. I believe you might be oh, looking yeah. at a picture of Brenda Fricker right now, judging by your description. Producer yeah. George is okay. sniggering at a photo. <laughs> so she's the one people say looks like Piers Morgan as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she does look a little bit more, but she looks so much more like Steve Bruce's sniggering. That's so good. Um, Bruce, oh, good. Harry Redknapp, they've got that thing of like, if you put a feather boa on them, they look sort of pantomime dame-like. Yeah, I don't know do. what it is about them. Rod Stewart has it as well, of course. Yeah, he does. <laughs> Paul Weller increasingly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, sorry. Anyway. No, no that's good. Good digression. Yeah. Anyway, he, he lands at Man United. I think he's definitely feeling a sense of like, I finally hit the big time. I and mean, he won the league cup at Norwich. So it's, you know, it wasn't, wasn't a bunch of nobodies, but after seven years at Gillingham, he thinks, right now I can play some proper football. United, are, they're a bit of a sleeping giant at this point. You know, they're mid table, but it's Man United. So he arrives and he's trying to hit these long passes to the strikers. And after a couple of training sessions, Fergie takes him aside and says, listen, you're not Franz fucking Beckenbauer. 
<laughs> see, see that goal. Keep the ball out of there. That's my Alex Ferguson impression. <laughs> it was like he was in the room. Going <laughs> <laughs> to apologise as always for our accents. That's my Alex Ferguson, and there are some Geordie ones coming. <laughs> and apologies to our Geordie listeners. Anyway, so he 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 heeds Fergie's advice that he's not Franz Beckenbauer, and decides, okay, I'm just going to be a sort of zero fucking nonsense blockhead centre back. And uh, his party trick is throwing his nose into danger. But he, he breaks it nine times by 1993, which Jeez. is when United finally wow. win the league. Can I, that's too many times. <laughs> I can only imagine that at a certain point he was enjoying it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned that... He's the, not the, in it for the football anymore. The, yeah. the, leg, the leg break yeah. at Norwich, there's an element of him sort of quite wistfully being like, ah, that should have been me. Yeah. You owe me a leg break. Yeah. When he said that should have been me, he was like, oh, <laughs> could have been me. Man, he just loves hospital food. Yeah. yeah, I don't know what it is. But uh, it, it, Fergie's man management, you kind of get a bit of a glimpse of it here because Fergie turns the br- nose breaks thing into this heroic thing. And apparently when academy players come and meet the first team, Fergie points at Bruce's nose and says, that's what a centre-half should look like. <laughs> uh, Fergie actually makes a pact with him that if he does 10 seasons at the club, he can have a nose job at the end of it. That to is fix it sensational. All. Yeah, which again, you get a bit of a sense of the carrot and the stick with Fergie. Yeah. Surely he can afford a nose job himself. These, you know, they're fairly well remunerated. It seems strange that that would be the he could now. Also, Fergie reneges on it. He does 10 seasons and, and Steve Bruce says the only promise he ever broke to me was never got me nose job. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not that he's bitter about it already. Though. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't hold grudges, Steve Bruce. <laughs> in fairness, he's not just a sort of blockhead centre-back. He scores a lot of goals. So in the 1990 and 91 season, he's United's top scorer with 19. 19 goals. That's, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. Is that all competitions or the league? I think so. Okay. They win the Cup Winners' Cup that season as well. And he's denied a famous goal because United's, I think it's their equaliser, is a free kick gets whipped in and Bruce heads it and it's rolling into the goal. And Mark Hughes just nips over and just nicks it right on the line. Mm. That's what you need. That's the drive you need to ruin someone else's day so you get yourself on the score sheet. <laughs> anyway, he's pretty pissed off. But as a consolation, he becomes United captain. And this is the phase where things are really starting to click. And the 1992-93 season, United haven't won the title in 26 years, but there's a big feeling, this is our year. And uh, they do it. And famously, uh, United need a win to go top right at the end of the season. And they're losing 1-0 against Sheffield Wednesday late in the game. Brucey pops up with an 89th minute header. And then the ref, under a lot of pressure from Alex Ferguson, plays, I think, eight minutes of stoppage time. And Steve Bruce scores in the 97th minute, a winner. Mm. This is the origin of Fergie time. It's considered the origin. Mm. And Bruce's winner takes them top of the table. They, I think they only play four more games. They don't lose the lead from there. And they're champions. Wow. And uh, it's an amazing story, right? And a huge uh, redemption for Man United. And in many ways, Steve Bruce. Well, certainly, certainly an amazing arc. And you'd think, given that huge moment, that they would have this sort of wild, lavish celebration. And as captain, it falls on Brucey to organise the celebrations. He decides to host a house party, which is quite an exciting prospect, I think. The captain's having a house party. Unfortunately, there is video footage, and I regret to inform you, it is a vibe-free zone. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, a little postscript to that house party back in 1993 is that Brian Robson and his wife stay over and help clear up the kitchen at 7am. Oh, but does that, I mean, Brian Robson and Steve Bruce, they they would be cut from the same cloth mm, in my brain. Mm. Well, I was sort of hoping when I heard that, that Robson and his wife sort of wake up on the sofa with like laughing gas canisters around them. And <laughs> I Bruce thought you were, has got the dealer coming around. I thought you were going to say that, you know, 
a few car keys were put in a bowl and <laughs> they were the ones that won that particular no, they cleaned the oven gave a swing tag uh, <laughs> they cleaned the oven <laughs> Steve where do you keep the marigolds <laughs> anyway that, we're around the high watermark of his playing career right because he wins the title that season the following season United win the double and United release uh, full hour long documentaries called Captain's Log which is what this video is from which is Brucey sort of going around with a camcorder and again it's it's unremittingly tedious stuff. It's like he spends a day with Lee Sharp bed shopping and they're just Shut in like up. a, like a DFS. Like, sorry, this would be like cracked me. How have I never seen this? <laughs> YouTube, Steve Bruce Captain's Log. Steve Bruce Captain's Log. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to do that. I, yeah, no, I, I watched the whole Captain's Log. I watched it on two times speed and it was quite hard work at times. Oh, wow. Because Paul Ince is really held up as the wisecracker and he doesn't really deliver. Mm. There's a funny suit he wears at one point, which brings the house down. <laughs> oh, I'm laughing already. <laughs> I think you'll enjoy it a lot. Check it out. Anyway, this is this is actually close to the end of Steve Bruce's playing career. He retires in 1996, having won a shitload with United. Beautiful ending. And that's it then. He never plays for England as well, by the way. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a sore point. Harsh, and it, co- it comes up in his writings. Mm. Well, well, let's talk yeah, about it then, actually. He becomes a manager after that pretty quickly. Yeah, right? so he does, he does a couple of years playing at, at Birmingham and then he's appointed player-manager of um, Sheffield United, which is... A very 90s thing. You Player managers, I, I really lament their loss. Yeah. That's, that's, to me, is such a... Have you, have you seen that photograph of Brian Robson uh, when he was unveiled as a player manager at, I can't remember who Middlesbrough. it was, Middlesbrough, where he's wearing a suit on the top half and shorts that and is... short socks and boots on the bottom half. Business up <laughs> top and parties on yeah. <laughs> how, does he, how does Brucey do? Uh, so he, only, he only plays 10 games for Sheffield United and then becomes um, becomes like full-time manager. And it's a bit of a baptism of fire because within a few months of uh, of joining, he's involved with one of still one of the most controversial football moments really is it throw in yeah yeah so it's this FA Cup tie there this is 1998 I think Sheffield United are drawn against Arsenal in the FA Cup play them at Highbury and so they're obviously big underdogs in this match and they put in a really good performance they're drawing 1-1 in the 76th minute when one of the Sheffield players goes down injured and they put the ball out so he can get treatment he's all right and uh Ray Parler gets a throw in and goes to throw it back to the Sheffield United keeper. And Carnu, who's just come on for his, for his Arsenal debut, he's like 10 minutes into his debut, doesn't get the message and intercepts the ball, runs up the pitch, squares it to Mark Overmars, who scores. And understandably, the Sheffield United players are absolutely livid, like surround the referee, load of them go over and start giving Carnu a hard time. He's, he's obviously he's so very confused. Like, doesn't speak a word of English. So. And Steve Bruce also absolutely loses it on the touchline, storms onto the pitch and threatens to to take his players off. He he actually says that the police threatened to arrest him if he if he did, if he took his players <laughs> off the pitch. Oh, okay, yeah, that, another stint in the slammer. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit of a theme. They are very heavy handed with him. They just, they just know a wrong when they see yeah, 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 yeah. It's the nose. It's not, it's not helping. You've been scrapping, haven't you? <laughs> but yeah, he's obviously, he doesn't want another, doesn't want to be thrown back behind bars after his last experience. So um, they, they do fulfil the match and lose 2-1. I don't know why Arsenal didn't just score, or like walk, in, let, walk in another goal. But they play out the match, Arsenal win 2-1. And afterwards, Arsene Wenger instantly goes over to Steve Bruce and offers him a replay, which which they take. Then Arsenal win the replay, which is a bit of an anti-cup. So I, the part of this that gets slightly overlooked is that 
they were obviously in like the 76th minute, one all. It would have gone to a replay at Bramwell Lane, whereas this match was replayed at Highbury. So that's that's quite a big advantage to Arsenal. Oh, I didn't real um, I didn't realize that aspect of it. Yeah, because I remember watching that game. It was such a oh, I didn't ever thought what would happen if that happened. It was it was great. It was like a little glitch in the football matrix. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, as a neutral, I was like, this is great that this is happening. Yeah, yeah, it was quite, I mean, people still talk about it now and it did, it sparked this whole Sheffield United-Arsenal rivalry that dragged on for like the next decade. We, we did an episode about Neil Warnock where that that was a big feature of it, this this like... Blades right, and Gunners. It's quite yeah. a one-way rivalry, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, he, he spends, I think, a couple of years at Sheffield United and then go, has this spell where he rolls through a few clubs. I think he does like Huddersfield, Wigan and Crystal Palace in quick succession. He's it's in the space of like a, a year and a half and he's kind of getting this reputation as not the, not a man of great loyalty as a, as a manager. But it's during his time at Huddersfield where he, he starts very well at Huddersfield and then it very rapidly goes downhill. It's almost as if he's his mind is elsewhere. I mean, I don't know what you could possibly mean. I don't know. Maybe you could enlighten us. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, the one thing I can think about is the fact that between 99 and 2000, if this is what you mean, he, in the space of six months, wrote three murder mystery novels. <laughs> that I think that's it. Despite yeah, yeah. the fact that he was very much full-time manager of Huddersfield Town <laughs> and had neither the wherewithal nor the spare time to be writing mystery novels, mm. even at the clip of a, norm, a normal author, uh, rather than one, it would seem, every nine weeks for a six-month period. So he did do this, is the uh, big twist. He wrote three mystery novels. Uh, they are called Striker, Sweeper and Defender. Um, you would presume from those titles that they're kind of based around the world of football. But there is a very, 
very small amount of football in these books. They are set in the confines of the football world, but these are murder mysteries, okay? (laughs) This is not about, oh, they're going to get in the cup, and oh, it's their big rivals, and in the 95th minute, like, all the football that's actual football from games is contained usually in the last four or five pages (laughs) uh, of each book, which is, you know, if you got a formula, write it hard. And so the premise of the books is that they are the adventures of a football manager named Steve Barnes. Now, you might not have clocked that that is an ingenious author surrogate for Steve Bruce. (laughs) He is the manager of Lettersford Town. So Lettersford Town are a crudely fictionalized version of Huddersfield Town. And this is a theme which he returns to again. It's a well from which he drinks greedily. (laughs) So he makes up uh, a, a bewilderingly complex amount of fake football teams now you, that are, are taking place in this league. So there's he used to play for Mulcaster United. There's also Girlington, there's Donningford, there's uh, Bridlington. I can't remember them all now. But <laughs> Chelford. I, yeah, there's like <laughs> Chelford. And you're like, okay, some of them have real world allegories and some of them you don't even know what they're supposed to be. Like Girlington, maybe Darlington, but like... <laughs> Why would that be the first one that you'd go to? It's a very strange one. And Lettersford Town and all these other clubs, you'd imagine it's like, oh, I don't want to mention Huddersfield or Manchester United because then you're like, uh, uh, people will be offended or I'll say the wrong thing and I want to be able to fictionalize them. Like, okay, cool. But unfortunately, he doesn't stick with this. So he also refers to walking through, you know, at his old, when he played for Mulcaster United, <laughs> oh, I remember walking through the Trafford Centre. <laughs> Um, you know, doing my shopping while on the glory days of Mulcaster. So is there a Trafford Centre in this fictional place called Mulcaster or is Mulcaster in Manchester? Then he also talks about his old manager at Mulcaster who'd won everything. He was a dire Scott, et cetera, et cetera. Like, okay, okay, it's, that's Sir Alex Ferguson. And then later he'll say, you didn't have to be Sir Alex Ferguson to work this one out. You're like, all right, so, so there is an Alex Ferguson and then there's that. So it becomes this incredibly bloated and swollen British Isles, half made up of real clubs, half made up of fake ones. And just like, uh, it's like I call it a pine shop Westeros filled with like black pudding and fags. And it's like (laughs) the entire, I couldn't get over this premise. And it it was the thing that just kind of kept coming back to me. It's like, who are, why, why is he doing it? I think he just liked making up fake fictional names for football teams. Cause sometimes you just see one and it's never mentioned again. Um, he also does a little bit of wrong writing in that respect. So at Mulcaster United, Steve Barnes did win the European Cup, uh, <laughs> but he was not capped for England, which becomes a little bit of a plot point in the second book. So the first book, uh, to give you a whistle-stop tour, their uh, star striker, the name of Duffy, Irishman, is found murdered. He is immediately suspected because he's actually finds the body and he's got the, you know, picks up the knife in his hand or whatever. So despite the fact that he is not only a football manager with, again, like his career as a writer, he does not have the wherewithal, the time, or anything like the right to investigate this murder. (laughs) Despite the fact it is quickly established and then immediately dropped that he is himself a suspect, or at least could be considered a suspect in the murder, he decides he's going to solve this murder. No sort of justification for this being his responsibility is ever given. He just starts driving around, talking to people at random, in this sort of breezily indeterminate way. Like, (laughs) just, he has this, inchoate sense of himself as just, I don't know, maybe he just watched like an episode of Taggart that morning. (laughs) 
And so Steve Barnes goes around like, and on his travels, he bunches into like IRA members, uh, a drug dealing owner of a gay club. Uh, who, who, who takes a shining to see, of course. doesn't he? Well, that is the other thing you need to know about these books is that Steve Barnes is God's gift. So <laughs> people constantly talk to him about how handsome he is, how nice his shoes are. And he himself is quite quick to kind of back all this up because he'll say th- he, he constantly talks about particularly his Jaguar. So he, he goes on long, long tangents about how nice his car is, for example. And he also goes on all sorts of long tangents. There's a point in the first book where he is being marched, presumably he thinks to his death by some gun toting IRA thugs. And he lapses into a multiple page long reflection on the sort of sedglands and wetlands of rural Lancashire, I think. And then he snaps out of it and it's fine. The IRA members are never mentioned again. There's never, he doesn't, they're neither named nor referred to ever again after this. And that kind of thing happens a lot in these books. They're not just filled with uh, like eye-boilingly remedial murder mystery plotting. They make very little coherent narrative sense. And they also are filled with so many other things, asides, thoughts, uh, ruminations on the world, on politics, on men, on women, on race, on society, on technology, on the future of women in the game, all sorts of things. And you're like, he just appeared to be having a jolly old time for no reason. No one asked him to do this. And <laughs> the readers did. Yeah. Or are we talking about Steve Barnes there? Yeah. Well, yeah. there we go. It's kind of, it is. Yeah. Should I throw out some, some extracts that you, you picked out when you were writing about it? This is uh an example of his writing style. Shannon's office was small. There was paper everywhere. On his desk was a PC, a personal computer, not a police constable. <laughs> <laughs> Which is in case you're a wondering. really good line if you're writing a, a satire, but I cannot stress how that is not meant to be a laugh line in the book. Yeah. And the book is filled with these. It's like every page. It's very Partridgean. Yeah. Uh, and... There, I mean, you've got more there. I, yeah, well, I, do? The I just ja- like, I just want to hear more because I love them. I'll do the, uh, one of the five descriptions of his Jaguar in, in the first book. I lock the car with central locking. The XJ8 has a food security system with ultrasonic intrusion <laughs> sensing, radio frequency remote control, and engine immobilizer. All necessary. This is a desirable motor. Yeah. <laughs> really draws you in that passage. And, and, uh, by the way, the other four mentions of the car in the first novel, they're, they're all quite long and it sometimes... It passes through sort of weirdness into parody and back again. Whereas in the second book, he has, I think there's another six or seven references and it's other people will say, hmm, I like your motor. Yeah, XJ8, it's this, this. And you're like, oh my bloody God, not my words, Carl, the words of Top Gear magazine. (laughs) (laughs) You're just like, this is so bonkers that you hope that it was some sort of paid promotion. Because otherwise it's, Completely demented. <laughs> I assume from the other descriptions it's not. Here's the reservoir one. What you describe as the 70% of the book is inane filler. I could make out the reservoirs made to provide water to the big cities of Lancashire. These reservoirs, dotted everywhere in hidden valleys, are themselves fed with water from upland streams. The previous summer had been a wet one, and the streams were torrents still. In order to facilitate the collection of this water, <laughs> the authorities, the water board, had constructed concrete watercourses. These allowed faster and more efficient collection of water. Like, (laughs) word count mania. And that happens all the time throughout the book. In the second book, it's it's by far the best book. So that that would be Sweeper. And Sweeper is 
it's so much better than the other books that I, I actually genuinely think I've got a bit of Stockholm syndrome with it and I just actually like it now. <laughs> uh, and I, I, because I can read it now with the layers of, this is like a piece of outsider art. So to again, try and give you a brief pressy because I feel like I, I just didn't even give you a sense of what the first book was about. It's not important. The second book, you need to know. Second book, <laughs> in the course of this book, this is some of the things that happened. He is pursued by the British Secret Service and kidnapped by them. That's one thing. He is pursued by Mossad, the Israeli Secret <laughs> Service, and kidnapped by them. And then finally, he is kidnapped by, I suppose you could say, a Yugoslavian warlord <laughs> who, it turns out, was at the center of the whole mystery. Because at the start of the book, old Sam Milton is uh, is uh, the janitor, the sweeper of the title. The only smart thing in the entire book is that it's a sweeper. You think, oh, it's like Beckenbauer, Baresi, whatever. It's No, it's not. It's literally, he's the man who sweeps up. <laughs> uh, and it's never addressed in the text. He's never mentioned. <laughs> Genuinely, it's never mentioned. They, they never make the sweeper connection. Possible the publisher just yeah. chose it. And uh, he dies. And old Sam Milton was his name. And you can tell he's old because he's old. And uh, uh, he was not who he said he was. This man who's died, the second person to have died in that stadium in, we've got to imagine, like four months. Yeah. Steve Bruce is there and like the police are just like, not at all interested in what is happening here. So again, he has to track down and find out what happened because he's taken to the mortuary and the mortician says, I think he was murdered. And I can tell that he's not been telling you everything because I've examined his face and he has Slavic cheekbones. <laughs> and so from that, they work out that he is a Yugoslavian <laughs> Not only that, but they, it eventually becomes out that he's probably, possibly someone who was involved in massacres in the Yugoslavian wars, and also that he, previous to that, might have been implicated in the Holocaust in the 40s. So <laughs> he is, you've got like Nazi hunting Mossad agents looking for this guy. You've got the British Secret Service trying to get in between it. And then you've also got the warlord himself, who it turns out faked his death Mm. but then also dies literally two pages after that. <laughs> so after you discover he's still alive, it's like, that was narratively does not work. And in the middle of it, you've just got this like buffeted space hopper of a man who has got no narrative agency, walk, just walking through being, I would say indiscriminately offensive to pretty much everyone. <laughs> and uh, again, this is, this is a book written by the football manager, Steve Bruce. <laughs> there's another bit where the British secret service try and get him to like work on their side. Cause obviously they're like, we need to tap this guy up. It's James Bond himself reborn. <laughs> but like, by the way, this entire time, he's still the manager. Like he still has like a game to be preparing for Saturday. Like mm. where is the time for this coming from? Doesn't he need to be like doing things anyway? They've got him trussed up and they're like, look, you've been digging your nose in where you shouldn't be. You don't know this guy's a warlord and these guys are Israeli secret service. You're right over your head. But if you, we'll give you a wire and you can work for us or whatever because uh, you seem to know what you're doing and uh, he's like serve your country man and uh, to which Bruce replies my country my country never wanted me <laughs> <laughs> I was like what do you mean well never got a cap for England did I <laughs> and the guy in front the guy in front this is another thing that he does throughout all these books is he has other people praise him like in, from the words of other characters so it's like, it's not too big headed. So the guy who's driving this sort of like, whatever, secret service van that's just like pulled him in off the street. 
It says, the most gifted uncapped fullback in the country, they say. <laughs> and then the, uh, the sort of posh sort of top dog of the Secret Service says, cricket was more my game. And you're like, oh, this is excellent characterization. <laughs> so like all of this comes together for me as one of the strangest, weirdest sort of side projects, which are, which, which is rendered even more sort of touching by the fact that when he started, when the first one was released, Huddersfield were doing okay. You know, I think they were in the top six, they were in the conversation for promotion. And by the time the last one is released six months later, you know, they're basically not great. And four months later, he gets his marching orders, I believe. I'm just imagining his, uh, his Huddersfield chairman storming into the office and being like, Steve, we're, what's going on? We're bottom of the we table. What's book. your plan? He's just like, fuck, fuck. Just like trying to, trying to hide his manuscripts and get out What have you been working on? You've been, you've been holed up in this office for weeks, Steve. <laughs> well, more cluster. Yeah. Like, also, I really want to stress again, there's so little football in the books, which, mm. so it's, 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 I believe it's unique. Uh, I'm not uh, yeah. exactly sure, but everything, <laughs> everything about these is great. So if you can find them anywhere, please, please do. You should usually be able to get them in a relatively big library or you should be able to get them at university libraries very often. Mm, uh, wow. They are, you could probably do without doing Defender. It's not great. Uh, that takes action to Brazil. Uh, <laughs> and it's, he clearly, he, he was running out of the sauce. I think at that point, <laughs> the magic a few too many knocks on the door from the, yeah, from, the Hedders, from the Huddersfield <laughs> director. <laughs> oh my God. Incredible. Well, I, I, we'll have to have you back for a read along, please. Yeah. But there, there yeah, is more on the Steve Bruce story outside of his literary career. Yeah. So after, after this ill-fated stint at Huddersfield, he, uh, he ends, he does this, this, he goes through a few, a few clubs very quickly. It ends up as at Birmingham, but a few months into his Birmingham reign, disaster strikes when when this headline hits the press. Car thieves batter soccer boss Bruce. Which is a fantastic headline. It's, it's nice. <laughs> a lot of plosive notes. It's, it's, a bit, it's a bit of a tongue twister, actually. Car thieves batter soccer boss Bruce. So basically, Steve was at home in bed at night and he gets woken by a commotion outside his house, looks out the window and two thieves are breaking into his daughter Amy's Mini Cooper and Steve shouts to them out the window and rushes down the stairs to confront these uh, these robbers and gets into a little scrap with him. And uh, apparently, according to the report, there were gouge marks and bruises to his face and back. Pretty pretty nasty scrap. Go for the nose if you're going to. Yeah. I mean, I don't, he likes it. <laughs> <laughs> He's too into it. He's like, yeah. oh, whoa, He's God, like hit bro. me, hit me. <laughs> you got to find it first. <laughs> <laughs> it's in my ear. That's where I play it every night before bed. Um, but Steve being the, the hardy man that he is, he makes it to Birmingham's game against Bolton the, the following day. Um, his chairman's very, very pleased with him. Is anyone else having trouble telling between the... the yeah. Steve, yeah. Steve Barnes yeah, sorry, and Steve Bruce. Every time it runs up against world, the world yeah. of crime, I'm like, we're right back here. This is it. Wow. He saw it all happen. He prefigured that the entire rest of his life was going to be constantly chased by shadowy forces mm. involved in harrowing physical ordeals. Yeah, these were actually Mossad agents trying oh, to steal man. his Mini Cooper. <laughs> Who faked their own deaths yeah. and yeah, came back. Sorry. So that was, what, what year was that? That was 2001. Yeah. Um, Keep going. Yeah. So while, while we're on the 
subject of Amy Bruce, Amy Bruce's Mini Cooper. Um, I want to do a little digression onto her because she's a, she's a bit of an upshot favorite. She's popped up in a in a few different episodes. She was a love interest in for both Jermaine Pennant and Nicholas Bentner and Darren Bent and Lee Hendry as well. Although she, she does oh, wow. deny the Lee Hendry one, uh, but these these are all all of these were Steve Bruce players, um, and she she dated them while he was managing them it was funny she she apparently was banned steve banned her from the sunderland christmas party because of her, because of her track record and uh hours after darren bent was um sold by sunderland i think 2011 um he was pictured leaving a hotel with ab priest oh my god she's pretty funny it's just like so like, oh, we've gone now just what's steve gonna do sack me <laughs> My favourite one, obviously, is the, uh, we've covered this already in the Nicholas Bentner podcast in more depth, but um, she she dated Nicholas for a while. He took her out to begin with to to win a £1,000 bet with Gary McSheffrey, which the addition of Gary McSheffrey to this story really What was the premise of the bet? The bet was like, if you, could, if you could take out the manager's daughter, I'll give you a grand. Yeah, I'm sure take out is the words that Gary McSheffrey yeah. used. So. <laughs> yeah. Possibly not. Um, but that actually goes, that, that gets quite serious. Nicholas Bender goes on holiday with uh, the Bruce family to Barbados. Well, they must have been privileged with the self-styled best footballer in the world. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah. To, and best manager as well. Yeah, around, to around, accompany them. Oh, to be a fly on the wall at the breakfast buffet. Oh, where, where was that holiday? <laughs> Barbados. That's pretty nice. Yeah, so, I mean, it's lovely, it sounds lovely. Actually, while, while we're on the subject of holidays, there's a Steve, Steve Bruce holidays, there's another one um, I wanted to tell that this was, I think it was after he was sacked by Newcastle, he went over to Dubai and went to the opening of um, Jamie Oliver's new restaurant there. He was with, with Freddie Flintoff for some reason. Um, and they're just there, you know, they're at this party, you know, doing like polite small talk, complimenting the volivants. And uh, Jamie sidles up to them and starts chatting. And it's all going nicely until Jamie makes the cardinal sin of swearing in front of Janet. And Steve tells him, he's like, takes Jamie aside. He's like, you mind, you mind not swearing in front of the women, please? And uh, and Jamie's sort of like, oh, okay, yeah, you know, whatever, it's fine. And carries on, carries on talking, and then swears again. And Bruce, Bruce turns to him, he's like, I, I told you once. Now, can you go? <laughs> and then, bear in mind, this is Jamie Oliver's party. <laughs> this, is the, this, is the open, this is the opening of his restaurant, and, and Steve, left Steve Bruce is trying to kick him out. <laughs> Don't swear. It's, I do expect him to be the kind of guy who would not like swearing in front of the women. In front yeah. of the women. Do, not in front of the women, please, Jamie. And I can also imagine Jimmy Oliver saying, oh, fair cop, and just leaving his restaurant <laughs> his as own well. party. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, um, another nice detail was that Steve Bruce turned up to the opening in a tracksuit. Oh, stunning. <laughs> Wonderful. Dubai, I hope, I hope that Dubai. it was. I imagine that it was like one of his old. It was like a Wigan tracksuit that he still has in the back of the wardrobe. SB initial. Yeah. <laughs> one one other funny moment from his his time at Sunderland. It was quite early in his in his reign there, and Bruce was asked in a in a press conference by one of the reporters whether he'd considered experimenting with the the Christmas tree formation that was all the rage at that time. And I'm not sure whether he was joking or not here, but he replied, oh, I'm not really into tactics. <laughs> Sensational. Yeah. Rings I mean, true. it's not quite what you want to hear from your new manager. That's 
That is wonderful. Yeah. That, that's amazing. Hull, I think the Hull job is his high watermark as a manager. He, had, he does pretty well there. It's 2014, he takes them to the Premier League, promoted. They get to the final of the FA Cup and they're 2-0 up against I Arsenal. I forgot about that. Yeah. That's FA, right. They go 2-0 up against Arsenal yeah. and then uh, it goes to extra time and they lose very sadly. It's the closest he comes, I think, to major silverware as a manager. Mm. Maybe a championship. He must have won the championship. I said major, Zach. Come on. You know what I mean. How We're, uh, dare you. Championship is a, a prestigious competition. <laughs> yeah, it is. I'll give him that then. He also gets them into the Europa League because Arsenal are already qualified, but they get knocked out in the qualifiers. Oh, that's annoying. He, so. he tastes European football yeah. there. We'll count that. Oh. Um, and that's probably the last manager's job where he gets, I think, the respect he deserves. You know, the fans are grateful. He gets them promoted twice and there's cup finals and so on. After that, he starts taking jobs with big clubs that are kind of down at, down at heel with frustrated fan bases. So famously, Aston Villa... He takes over there when they're languishing in the championship. Uh, you know, they're not getting promoted. And it starts okay, but after a couple of years, it's going wrong. And Villa are on an eight-game winless streak going into a game on a chilly October night at Villa Park. And Brucey's down in the dugout before the game, sort of marking out his his path around the technical area, <laughs> stalking. And an elderly fan runs down to the front of the stand with a white plastic bag, pulls a cabbage out of it, throws it at Steve and yells, this is what you've reduced us to. Yeah, It misses, fortunately, because they're heavy cabbages. Yeah. Uh, damage. Half, half a kilo to a kilo in weight, typically. <laughs> You know, did you did you buy six cabbages and take them home last night? Bag of sugar. the median. But it's also like there's proper weight and intent because you're bringing it. I mean, it's probably it's more difficult to bring a cabbage into a football stadium. Like you'd have to explain that, wouldn't you? Well, you do now. After that, they're yeah, on the you, banned items list: <laughs> lighters and glass bottles. Anyway, after the cabbage is thrown at him, you, you Steve's probably expecting the club to release a statement condemning the fan and saying they're cooperating with police. And he's called into the chairman's office and, you know, again, he's probably expecting tea and sympathy. And instead they sack him 24 hours after he's had a cabbage thrown at him. Oh, which is, you know, again, there's sort of Alan Partridge parallel creeping in again there. Sort of. Yeah, because that has the grammar of them sticking up for him, bringing him up straight away. And they're like, no, no, we're on his side. In fact, we're going to make him chairman. And uh, (laughs) I've resigned because that guy loves this club more than me. Also, here's another cabbage. Bam. (laughs) It's, it's painful. And, and it's, it's, I would say... Cruel. Cruel. Yeah. I mean, I thought, so I'm a Newcastle fan, actually. Be surprised to hear, but I thought it was completely unfair. Yeah. The way, mm. the way he got treated. And frankly, he got given fuck all budget by Mike Ashley. But from day one, he's not welcomed. And, and you probably recall that famous quote, when he is finally let go by Newcastle's new owners, he reflects on the abuse that he had from day one. And he says, it has been very, very tough to read people constantly saying that I was useless a fat waste of space, a stupid, tactically inept cabbage head. Yeah, Which, did anyone actually ever say those words that you were <laughs> tactically inept cabbage head? Like, he's yeah. made that a bit more yeah. lucid. He's not doing it, himself or, any favours. Or maybe by... he's become like one of those people who goes on Twitter obsessively Googling their own name and he knows everything that everyone has said. Because that does sound so specific that someone has to. Yeah, it sounds like it. a direct quote. Also, when did it become cabbage head? Anyway, to your point, he has been on social media. Because he he actually shares his perspective and he's got a pretty good perspective, I would say, on the abuse overall. Because he says, how was my Geordie accent last time? Should I attempt that again? <laughs> Go for it. it. Perfect. Yeah. 
I was talking with my son. Biker Grove. <laughs> I was talking with my son about abuse a referee was getting. And he said, dad, it's nothing compared to what you get. I looked and was like, wow. But on the flip side, social media got me my dog back after it ran away from a firework display. <laughs> Astounding. That's so good. That is oh. such a beautiful quote. Yeah. That sums up everything I love about him. Yeah, agreed. Just that sort of knockabout, unintentional whimsy. Yeah. Just a needlessly nice-seeming, quite odd man. Yeah. And weirdly, he's got the most refreshing perspective on the whole social media abuse thing out of anyone, really. He's, yeah. he's quite sort of... Uh, he got that dog back. Yeah. He got his dog back. I don't know what the story is there. by a fireworks, fireworks display. Yeah, and it bolted. You might get bombarded with death threats from teenagers, but <laughs> you might get your dog back. One other thing that I think conveys just the sweetness of the man, uh, I just want to watch is the clip. Have you seen this clip? Which is Steve Bruce. He sits down in his chair before a press conference and uh, a journalist asks him, how's your day been? And Steve mishears him. How was the bacon, did you say? <laughs> I love him. I love him so much. How's the bacon? How's the bacon, did you say? But he also, he's like, he's, an, he's answering completely earnestly. Because he was going to, he's going to answer, how's the bacon? Um, okay, yeah. Uh, he was going to answer that question. Yeah. There's no part of him that even seems confused by it. He just wants to clarify that that's absolutely what you're you asking. think he had an answer for that question? Well, bacon and cabbage go together, <laughs> famously. <laughs> so maybe he thought it was a dig? I don't know. <laughs> I think that really conveys what he's... Yeah. How's the bacon? How's the bacon, do you see? Amazing. <laughs> he's a sweet guy, and he, I, I don't get why he's maligned. For, for slightly negative football tactics, it doesn't I, seem I like. also can't imagine that he just had a huge plate of bacon in the Cobb canteen before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah he was feeling a bit guilty yeah. about it, just actually. Just a punnet of bacon. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, mean, I think that's all, all we got time for. Unless there's anyone has any different conclusion on Steve Bruce, I think I'm all brisked out. But uh, no, I think no one else has a a Brucey bonus. We can call it <laughs> Brucey bonus. No. All right. Well, thanks a lot for listening. Please hit subscribe, share it with your friends. Um, Seamus, we'd love to have you back on. Whether it's to talk about the books or you're just something of a scholar of football autobiographies as well, aren't you? I am indeed. We could um, go there. Yes. In a past life, I had to read quite a lot of them for uh, an old podcast that I did, which is now defunct. I called the reducer and it has left me with way too much knowledge about some of these people. And particularly this period of like the nineties into the late two thousands of like football becoming this big, a big enough industry where you had loads of autobiographical details. Mm-hmm. You had loads of, sort of scandals and the red tops going mad for all these players. So I find it very reassuring to be in the presence of a good, decent man who sums up that period in his own way, even if he does have two quite serious stints in the slammer. (laughs) 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 Thanks a lot, Seamus. And thank you, Zach. Thank you. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.